to Exploring Filipino Kitchens. I'm your host, Nastasha Alley. So I know I'm a little late to the game, but one of the best books I read this year, by far, hands down, was The Third Plate by Dan Barber. I loved it because it asks this really big question. How do we save ourselves from what we're doing to our food systems? And it triggers the kinds of conversations that I love having with people. Basically, the idea behind the third plate is that we, meaning you and me, can actually make a difference with how good food and good farming come together. I also want to tell you about something amazing that happened this week. So a couple months ago, I submitted this essay for a food sustainability media prize given by the Thomson Reuters Foundation. They are an incredibly well-known, well-respected name in journalism. And I was so excited to hear that they had this contest that basically recognizes the work of professional journalists as well as emerging talent from all over the world for reporting on issues and stories around food security, sustainability, agriculture, and nutrition. It was so up my alley. Last month, they emailed me to say I was a finalist, and as you can imagine, I was over the moon. And then, just this week, like at the end of November 2018, I had this out-of-words opportunity to fly to Milan, in Italy, to accept the award for my entry. My essay was called, Why the Philippines May Run Out of Fish by 2048. I know the title is a little clickbait, but it is based on facts and figures around how the fishing industry in the Philippines is seeing an incredible decline with no immediate signs of resurfacing. Anyway, I won. And you guys, I can't even begin to describe it. I won an international journalism award and about writing for something I really, really love. Tuyo, or dried fish. It blows my mind that Paola Barilla, like the heir of the Barilla Pasta Company and head of this Center for Food and Nutrition, actually handed me something to say that he and the world, by extension, are eager to listen to stories about food security and sustainability in places like the Philippines. So on this episode of Exploring Filipino Kitchens, we're going to talk with Charlene Tan who founded a community-supported agriculture program called the Good Food Community. They are, quite literally, planting the seeds for a new future, offering a third plate for Filipinos ready to make a change. We've got a lot to cover this episode. Let's get to it. Char, Charlene Tan of Good Food Community. It's a 
social enterprise that runs a community-shared agriculture program. The big idea is to connect people to where their food comes from through a subscription type system. So kind of shifting people from a consumer mindset to a co-producer mindset. Believing that agriculture is a community affair or should be supported by a community, we all put in our stake by paying upfront for a share of the harvest and we get a share of um, whatever's fresh in season in order to support our farmers in farming properly. So that's kind of the big idea that we're trying to grow in the Philippines to work for smallholder farmers. So that's what Good Food Community does in so many ways. So how many farming communities do they work with now, I ask? Uh, communities, I'd say uh, we have Capas, Benguet, Mountain Province, Rizal, and Ida. So five communities. The farmers we work with there range from like 10 to 20, anywhere between 60 to 100. I say it's a range because we invite a lot of people, but not everyone participates, right? So we visit all their farms and we accredit them, but it's really up to, to them if they want to take the opportunity or not. And so some benefit more, others less so. And how did they start? Um, I worked for an NGO years ago. I've always kind of been passionate about rural development. I really I like the outdoors, to nature, trying to find a way to be of service in that area. So I worked for an NGO that was working with communities and was doing sustainable agriculture and small-scale renewable energy. And what I saw was that, well, the way an NGO works, you're kind of grant-based, mm -hmm. right? So sometimes the people who are funding the project don't know what's happening on the ground, mm -hmm. and you may need to change in the middle of a project, and because you're beholden, you can't do that. So that's one issue. And then the other issue is sometimes the, the proposal is something like food security, which is kind of not, so, not where the farmers are at. Maybe a better incentive might be like a livelihood or something. So when I heard about CSA, Community Shared Agriculture, I learned about it through a volunteer who was really good at cooking. So when I asked him, how'd you get this good? He was from the UK. And he said, well, we get a box of vegetables every week and you just have to kind of make do with what you get. But I know exactly where it's from. And you know, my creativity comes from that. So when I heard about this idea, I thought it would be brilliant for our smallholder farmers. I like really love the idea. So I was like, okay, sure. Like, I mean, I thought we should try it, you know famous last words. So, um, so that's how we started. I, I mean, I was pitching it to different people before while I was working on the NGO. And finally, like my prayer group, who'd been meeting since after college, they were looking for an area of service to do together. And I said, oh, at that time, social enterprise was still kind of a uh, new concept and kind of exciting. So it's like, we can do this. How hard can it be, you know? That was back in 2010. There were 12 of us who started. And since I was working for an NGO, we were connected immediately to a community where they had a demonstration farm in Tarlac. So we talked to the farmers. We said, this is the basic idea. If we were to order in advance for these kinds of vegetables, would you be able to deliver? So we started with 11 farmers in that area. And then... And as we can already hear from Char, selling local farmers on this idea to plant vegetables according to what's in season, 
basically trusting the idea that people would buy these vegetables even if they knew it wasn't the kind of stuff that their regular customers, say at the local palenque or the wet market, would buy. That was a challenge in itself. Because, let's put it this way, if you lived in a farm, would you trust someone from the big city, this well-meaning but total outsider, to know what you could actually sell? I mean, few people would. And if you had your whole family's earnings on the line, well, that's another bridge to cross. So I asked Char to give us a little backstory on what farmers that they were working with at the beginning were actually growing at the time. Um, so at the time, they were growing rice and sugarcane. And I mean, we didn't know. <laughs> we just thought, oh, farmers are farmers. And when we offered this, it was something completely new. I mean, not completely new in the sense that they don't know how to grow it, but they never really had a commercial mindset for growing. So vegetables were like a backyard operation, you know. As they, so some of them would grow it for themselves and some not. But when we said, okay, if we were going to order this much and we needed it this time, they were not, uh, they couldn't plan, they couldn't imagine like three months from now, they're like, and they were very risk averse. So they're, it depends if it rains at the right time, if the, you know, if the flowers would be pollinated and like fruit. So it was interesting because like neither did we, I mean, we just took for granted, you're a farmer, you know what to do, right? So yeah, it was interesting to begin working with them. I was going to ask actually. That seems like so much work for 12 young people in a prayer group. Did any one of them have some experience with farming or agriculture? No, none of us did. Not even like business, whatever. We just thought, it's a good idea, we'll figure it out, you know. But of course there were a lot of meetings and a lot of like, um, and each person had something to offer. Uh, so we had someone who was good at graphics, good at like media stuff, another a writer, someone who had some marketing background. I had the NGO background. Um, was another person wrote the business plan and you know so everyone had something to contribute but not agriculture so what we did was we hired an agriculturist at the beginning to be at the farms and then to kind of coordinate among the farmers so that was part of it but we didn't cost ourselves into the business model or anything just kind of had to change it quickly as change as we go along yeah, yeah. Because that's what's interesting to me about Good Food Community, is to give some of our listeners a bit more context as to what community-supported agriculture is like in the Philippines. Uh, you know, in, in the U.S. and Canada, to give a specific example, it is pretty common now that you get a CSA subscription and have it delivered to your door. And people are really open to that concept because they are uh, very much aware of supporting locally grown uh, ingredients and being able to support, uh, support smallholder farmers. But you know, in the first year that you started Good Food Community, could you share one big challenge from the consumer side? So what were the challenges of introducing this idea to consumers? And what was another challenge from the farmer side? One of the biggest challenges with the consumer side was the perception of local and knowledge of local vegetables. So remember, we started with one community, Kapastarlak, and the kind of vegetables we would get are your Bahay Kubo vegetables, like so ampalaya, squash, eggplant, um, mustasa, 
you know, lowland spinach, alubati, things that you don't usually see in your supermarket. I mean, some like. And Char talks about this a couple times the Bahe Kubo vegetables, which to me were such an interesting part of our conversation. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Bahe Kubo nursery rhyme, it goes a little something like this. I know, it's hard to get out of your head. The Bahay Kubo song is a Tagalog folk song about vegetables that grow around the Bahay Kubo, or Nipahat, in the Philippine countryside. It's idyllic. Calls back, you know, this totally different time and place, even from the Philippines that I know in Manila. Some place where people lived in huts, raised on bamboo stilts with slatted floors, and kids raised and chased their chickens around the yard, and dad would chop off banana leaves from the tree, and that will be your plates for dinner. In this particular setting, people would plant vegetables like shikamas, eggplants, winged beans, peanuts, long beans, hyacinth beans, lima beans, ash gourds, sponge gourds, bottle gourds, squash, radish, mustard, onions, tomatoes, garlic, ginger, and sesame. It kind of feels like I'm doing a little rap thing there, but those are literally all the vegetables in the Bahay Kubo song. Like I said, it's idyllic, but totally something that a lot of Filipino kids know by heart thanks to the song. In practice though, Growing and eating these vegetables have long been out of the picture, at least for most kids. Going back to some of those challenges that the good food community CSA had with convincing people to support community-shared agriculture. I felt like, sure they'd try it once for the idea, like try it, but they did not prefer it, or they wouldn't know what they were, you know. So a lot of our local vegetables were one, like, not valued as much as, say, carrots, cauliflower, kale. Um, (laughs) And so they wouldn't, you know, it was all right, but they wouldn't continue to subscribe. Um, So it was a perception and knowledge of vegetables. Um, A a success? But I guess that's not really a surprise. That people would pay more, even two or three times as much, for imported vegetables. You know, like the trendy kales and cauliflowers of the world that have become super popular in the Philippines, too, because Western food marketing absolutely reaches them and totally impacts local food economies. Why would farmers grow indigenous Philippine vegetables that no one wants to buy if they can grow kale and cauliflower that, even if they had to invest money to buy seeds for, has way more demand and is way more profitable when... They go about selling it to people in the city who pay two or three times as much for imported vegetables than local stuff. Looking at these kinds of issues really forces you to think about the bigger picture. What was it like working with these farmers, I asked. Um, a big challenge was just planning. <laughs> and it remained a challenge for a number of years. Because, as I mentioned, there was no sense of like, oh, hey, if, I, if I'm going to harvest this much at this time, when should I be planting? When should I be, you know, apparently with like rice? 
this goes back to something we talked about a couple episodes ago with Cherry Atilano, who runs another farming social enterprise in the Philippines called Agrea. And, well, simple as the concept might be, to plan for planting and harvesting different vegetables throughout the year, a lot of farmers in the country, in the Philippines today, just haven't learned any other way of farming. The average age of Filipino farmers is 65, with many having gone to school maybe as only as far as the third or fourth grade. And the idea of upgrading skill sets, like having government-supported programs to further educate farmers, that doesn't really exist. And if they do, they're very likely paid for by companies who sell modified strains of rice, for example, that farmers actually need to be trained for because they grow differently from the traditional local indigenous rice varieties that their parents planted and that they learned how to plant. You know, apparently with like rice, um, it's very different the way they think about it. Or it's very like cyclical. Yeah, like, okay, three months and, you know, and then depends. You pay attention to the rain, to the, the environment. But with the vegetables, there are times when these things are in season. When do I grow it and how much do I need to grow so that I'll be assured of at least this much harvest. And then how do you work in a- So for these farmers who've grown rice for most of their lives, the idea of just needing to grow certain things for this CSA, this delivery that needs to get done at the end of every week, it's so different from what they've relied on for most of their lives, which is this traditional three-month cycle of planting. As an aside, that also makes me think, because before most Filipino farmers get completely retrained or, you know, pass on, how do we make sure that the existing knowledge they actually have of these different indigenous rice varieties that they've been growing for forever, how do we make sure that isn't lost? So many things to consider. And then how do you work in a group so that we're not all planting the same thing? So planning was a big issue. I mean, even even just to get them to commit. You know, we needed one in that room when we first proposed it. We were like, okay, if we're gonna have 20 kilos of tomatoes at this time, can you do it? We're like, well, I don't know. Yeah, and then so it took like one farmer to be like, de kaya yan, you know, it's like for sure we can do this to kind of believe in like something that they hadn't done before for them to take that risk. Honestly, I laugh every time I hear Char go, because it's so Filipino. Another thing Filipinos like to say, it's that relentless optimism in everything that, I mean, I'm kind of happy to carry myself as well. I talk about these details a lot these mannerisms and behaviors ingrained in Filipino culture because I find that it really helps give us context to these different issues surrounding food accessibility in the Philippines. Let's jump back to Manila. You were mentioning earlier, like, vegetables, for example, they don't think of it as something that can generate income for them. It's just like, you know, a backyard crop. It's the Bahay Kubo vegetable that you can just have a little bit of in your backyard, but not necessarily grow a lot of to make money for it. 
when you introduce this concept or this idea to them that, okay, we're going to order a set amount from you, did they have to build their own cooperatives or was that already in place in terms of... We had to build a cooperative with them. So especially where we started in Kappa Startup, there wasn't much organization at all with RICE. So we had to like continue to meet with them and we need to register as an association or as a cooperative and then we need to elect your leaders, you know, just have one voice, talk amongst yourselves. So it took like two or three years to be, and even now, like, the story continues to unfold. And as we met other communities, we did see different examples. But for rice and sugarcane and capas, there wasn't that kind of organization. The sense I got from NGO work was that a lot of associations are formed to get stuff from the government because unless you are organized, you can't receive grants or or support. So oftentimes they would organize for that. It's not new. Um, and early on, it became really important for them at Good Food Community that farmers own their land for a couple reasons. So we chose to work with uh, smallholder farmers. We wanted the farmers to all work on their own land. Each of them like would have two hectares or less. They'd have their rice growing in it. What they would do is typically clear an area behind their house to start growing the vegetables. And it's usually less than, what, 500 square meters. Um, that is not a lot of space. 500 square meters is like the size of a bachelor apartment in downtown Toronto. But even with a small amount of land... What we found was it really helped in terms of food security because... Apparently with the rice, there's a lean season, there's a time where they're actually hungry or they don't have enough. That's usually around July, August. So with a cycle of rice, combined with a cycle of like educational expenses, etc., they would have sold most of their rice from the first harvest and then put in money for the second planting season and then not have enough stored to just kind of tie them through, yeah. So there are periods of actual hunger, <laughs> which we didn't know. And so with the vegetables, at least there's something to eat all throughout the year. I mean, because with us, we have... So in other words, by halfway through the year, July and August, farmers have very little, if anything, to live on. Three big things basically stack up at this time, like they need to purchase seed and fertilizer for the year's second harvest, which they need because the first isn't enough, and if they've got kids in school, which a lot of farming families do, they need to buy things like school supplies, books, uniforms, none of this is for free. And at this point, they've spent most of the money they actually saved from the first part of the year on everyday expenses like food and electricity, very big things. If they had set some of their rice harvest aside for personal use, by this time, that's gone to Char's house. I mean, because with us, we have the purchase agreements. And so every week we're like, what do we actually have? And what can we deliver? So as, as long as they, they can grow vegetables to sell to us, they have a little bit of pocket money to feed themselves. So, Could you give us a sense of what the profile of some of these farmers are like, like the community in Kapas, for example? Um, they're generally like 50s to 60s. There's a main farmer representative who goes to the meetings, but usually it is a family affair. Um, well, with many of them, 
their kids are already somewhere else. They're already in the city or studying somewhere, and they have no interest in farming. So the parents are the ones who are just doing us generations before them and continuing to till the land. So in a few cases, though, when we have younger farmers, their kids get involved. And actually, I have only one farmer in mind for that area, and she's like the model farmer. So Atelady has like four kids, and they all have their respective duties. But she was very entrepreneurial, and she really had. She really has a sense of like the, the opportunity with this. So when she joined, we were all really happy. We we're like, yay, you know, like a younger farmer, someone who could like text and like, yeah. you know. And then, so what we saw was like from a small area garden. When we started with her, you could see like that area expanding and cutting out less and less of the rice. So when it's more and more vegetables and less and less of the rice, because it simply makes more economic sense to her. So she really saw. Um, the benefit, and so her kids are involved. They all have their respective chores, went to water, went to to harvest, and stuff like that. And so it's quite nice to see. And she's become like a community leader for their association. That's awesome. So, what kinds of vegetables did Atelady plant yeah, in her garden? It's a mix. So it's the pakbet vegetables, baikuba vegetables, so squash, eggplant. Um, I remember we had a lot of saluyot, sitao, cigarillas, tomatoes, what else? Patola, upo, lowland spinach, talbos ng kamote, amaranth. Yeah, so... So my big question was, have the farmers themselves actually started eating more of the bahay kubo vegetables that she was talking about, that Adelaide grew as well? I don't think the... The kinds of vegetables, like in the Bahay Kubo, were as alien to them as they are to us, like living in the city. Yeah. So they always kind of knew that they existed. But having them in their backyard um, changed their diet in the sense that, you know, because there was always the vegetables in the house or in the in the farm. Then it became more accessible, and they became. And I think just physically, like knowing what it took to to farm them, to grow them more often, and what they actually taste like, they're like, I don't trust. <laughs> um, what I would buy in the wet markets in the Palenques anymore because I've had fresh vegetables, I've had organic vegetables, so I know what it tastes like. And, you know, so there's that. And then another happy effect was when their kids would visit from the city, they would also eat up all the vegetables. So it's a risk to us like who have an order, but at least we're, you know, they're able to be fed quite well. Yeah. But it's also interesting because uh, I have to admit that we did ask them to also plant salad greens. People were more willing to pay much more for that. So here they were like, what are these greens, you know? Yeah. And then, but you know, in the first few meetings, they'd be like, hey, I know how to eat this now. You know, you just add like, what, canned tuna or something and you yeah. have a salad or, or sardinas mm-hmm. and then you have a salad. So it was interesting, like just sharing, oh, like, how to eat more more vegetables and what they do with it. Except for arugula, they're like, take it, take it all. Like, <laughs> not even our, our pigs would eat the stuff, so. Different <laughs> or, flavor profiles. Yeah, and cilantro, they hate.
ECSA brings vegetables to their customers in something called the bayong. A bayong is a bag made of long green leaves that are braided together, dried, and woven into these beautiful, intricate styles. They're like the OG farmer's market bag, like before it was cool when your Lala took it with her everywhere she went. These things are built to last. Sometimes they're even made from pandan leaves, like the same ones that people stick into a pot of rice to make this everyday food, this everyday starch, just a little more special. I love the smell of pandan leaves. So when people who sign up for the Good Food Community CSA box get this bayong bag full of vegetables delivered to them every week, by doing that, it's their direct way of establishing a connection with Filipino farmers, supporting the local economy, and enjoying this amazing produce that, honestly, people just need to eat a lot more of. I asked Char if she could tell us a little bit more about some of their customers at Good Food Community. Uh, they're generally women. When I look at like a Facebook or um, Instagram, like uh, our stats, they're mostly between 30 to 50. Young families, mothers who like understand kind of the value of organic vegetables, not just in a health sense, but in a wider social sense. And they're also typically the people who would at least try to compost or just generally conscientious, who would kind of take the inconvenience to source their food properly. So by now, we're kind of circling back to a central theme in our conversation so far. At the heart of it, community-supported agriculture, this model is about creating a more just, a more fair, a more sustainable food system. But what does that really look like in the Philippines? I mean, there are many ways to talk about sustainability, but I guess at the root of what we're proposing is that we need to take care of each other. You know, I mean, that's just it. <laughs> so it's a very real invitation to relationship, to inconvenience for the sake of something that is long term. I'm not sure if people can buy into it if all they're thinking about is their welfare because it is not very convenient to not be able to choose your vegetables. Um, it will take you out of your comfort zone to see what, you know, to be beholden to what, yeah, to what's in season. Um, but you learn a lot about how things taste, the freshness of it, and, you know, what we actually have locally. Yeah, and I guess knowing where it comes from. If you actually want to go further and visit the farm, you're also most welcome. That's the value. It's mm -hmm. really a kind of care, fair trade, you know, and health desiring, like, not just not like personal health, but social, ecological health. It's been fulfilling in that sense to get people's feedback and be like, hey, the, those vegetables tasted amazing or it's, it smelled wonderful or like I've never tasted patola that's, you know, like this. And just to see like people buy into this whole kind of living differently and like Building being creative. A sense of community, I guess, yeah. too, in many senses. Well, with that vision, like, 
where do you see Good Food Community growing in the next five years, for example? Well, I'd like for this to be a movement. I mean, it does take a lot of awareness, but I guess the vision is for this, for people to be connected with the rural areas and, and for us to kind of revitalize our agriculture in a choice for like healthy, ecological, growing, but also may that also sort of heal the city in our busyness and our you know, consumerism and stuff to kind of like slow down and, and see what's important and like choose to, to really nourish ourselves with the food, with these relationships. And I'd like to see models of these community shared agriculture all over the Philippines in five years. It may not be exactly the same, like in Cebu, Davao, CDO, but the basic idea is to have a place where farmers and urban dwellers can work together to kind of shift consumers' attention to looking back at what we do have, you know. And the second thing would be to choose it, like what grows well in the Philippines, what should we be growing in the Philippines, you know, what's the point in growing things that don't grow well, you know. And it's like first shifting like the attention to what riches we do have and then also but as anyone with some experience in marketing, or, I mean, even social media today knows, people don't just care about something overnight, unless you're like a royalty or a celebrity or something. It takes a lot to spread the word and ideas, especially if it's about changing systems that have been in place for a really long time. We all just need to learn why we need to change and how. For Char and her team at Good Food Community, what did some of those educational parts or components look like, I asked. Well, we had an NGO partner, the NGO that I used to work for. We're the ones with the agriculturists. So there was that sort of support in sourcing the seeds and then teaching them how to compost, to build their own soil health and like how to program their crops and stuff like that. Um, alternative pest management, what you can do if you don't want to spray any chemicals. And then there would be refresher courses because, you know, we don't ever learn anything the first time. Um, and it's a continuing thing, like, for the farmers to learn how to, to grow in their craft. So if you're planting this, what should I be planting? And how do we work together to fulfill an order? And there are so many other things that go into, like, community organization. Um, on the consumer side, we would often like put a recipe into the basket, especially in the first few years, like there would be some new recipe that actually we would just find, but also we would do community kitchens, so invite people to come over and then let's play with these vegetables and see yeah. what comes up. And it's really like, it doesn't have to conform to a particular recipe, it can taste yeah. good. And when you're with a group, you know, it's kind of safer, yeah, yeah. and fun. So. And our markets, too, in a way, are somewhat educational, just kind of by displaying our vegetables and other sustainably sourced products have to have a conversation with you as a consumer. I think it's an interaction that you don't have in the supermarket or even in the palenque sometimes with middlemen. So, so I'm learning that a lot of it is really relationship, you know, and relationship building takes time. And 
And the best kind of education is when you can interact one-on-one -on -one or like just talking or doing things together. Like when I talk to my team after seven years of working, like I would say, what do you think is the single success factor in like working with the farmers and their like presence? You just have to be present. If they don't see you, you know, you don't know what's happening. They don't know what's happening. But the more that you talk to them, the more that you're there to kind of troubleshoot and, and listen. It's also a relationship. I guess that like physicality of being there is also um, reassurance for the, the communities as well, I guess. That you're in it for like for the long run. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. That you're there, that you're still interested, that, you know, you're with them. Yeah. That's what makes farmers markets really popular in, in all over the world now is that you do get that really one-on-one -on -one sense of being able to kind of connect with you know, the people who grow your food or at least as close as you can get to it uh, as possible. And from a consumer perspective, I love going to, to markets like local markets uh, in Canada because it does kind of give me a better sense of place, I guess, like for myself and where I see myself in that area and in that community and I also would really kind of be interested in seeing where that goes in the future like how much that community of people in the Philippines grows where you know they're really they really want to make that connection and be a part of this this kind of community and this kind of growth uh, with also like for the Philippines and you've seen like the gap between the rich and the poor and it, to me it's just like there are these centers uh, the cities of, of incredible wealth but very little sense of place. You know, like I grew up third generation Chinese, born in the US and live in Quezon City most of my life. And I have no recollection of, I don't know, I couldn't tell one vegetable from another. The cuisine I would eat is dependent on like what is served, but terroir or yeah. like, you know, season. No, so I know cereals or yeah. you know, whatever. And that's just, and that's fine, but I would, but my life is disconnected completely from the other 90% of the Philippines. And meanwhile, people just all want to flock to the city looking for kind of better chances at life. And so like, there's gotta be a better way than that, right? So it takes us to kind of ask what's going on in the rural areas, what grows here, how can, you know, yeah, that's kind of the movement that we're trying to, to drive, like what do we have growing, what can we further together. I feel like it involves... That's like the best call to action I can think of. What do we have growing and what can we take further together? My sincerest thanks to Charlene Tan, who I met and interviewed on my last visit to the Philippines. Visit goodfoodcommunity.com to learn about their CSA or Community Supported Agriculture Program. Find them on Instagram at goodfoodcommunity. And even if you don't live in the Philippines, I still recommend you follow you'll totally learn a lot about local vegetables. I know I did. Head over to my website at www.nastasha.ca. That's N-A-S-T-A-S-H-A with an S dot C-A to read the article I talked about at the top of this episode. 
because when you love tuyo, that dried salted fish, as much as I do, it can lead to pretty great things, like winning an award for journalism. Our theme music is by David Seste, segment music is by Eric and McGill and Blue Dot Sessions. Follow the show on Facebook and Instagram at Exploring Filipino Kitchens, then head over to our website, exploringfilipinokitchens.com, for past episodes and transcripts and this thing I put together where I put different episodes that are arranged by themes together. It's pretty interesting. Have a look. If you know someone who'd enjoy the show, word of mouth means everything. Tell them about this podcast, Exploring Filipino Kitchens. It really means the world to me. Maraming salamat, and until next month, thank you for listening.